the eternal Son of God became just like you. He was manifested in the flesh. The apostles were reporting real historical events, and that lies at the foundation of their integrity and reliability. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series titled The Apostles' Proclamation. Tom has part three for you on today's broadcast. We're looking at the Apostle John's proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ in his first letter. So far, we've learned that the hope of eternal life is the believer's ultimate foundation for fellowship with God, the joy that results from such a hope, and how that hope is directly tied to the proclamation of the gospel. Today, Tom will continue to examine the rich truth that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the foundation for all things in your life, the main thing, is the gospel. Open your Bible as we join Tom Pennington now with today's message on The Word Unleashed. Let's go then to 1 John chapter 1. In the prologue, in the first four verses of his letter, John is providing evidence for the truth of the gospel that we have believed. I think you understand that even in our own jurisprudence system, in the legal system of the U.S., there are rules of evidence that govern what is admissible in a court of law. One of the acceptable types of evidence is the testimony of a witness. This is in some ways the most familiar to us. Testimonial evidence, we're told by the the legal system, is only admissible if, first of all, it is material, if it is relevant, and if it is competent. Now, for testimony to be competent, For someone who purports to give testimony in a court of law, for that testimony to be competent, it must meet four basic conditions of reliability. First of all, it must be under oath. Secondly, the person must have personal knowledge. That is, they have perceived something with their senses that applies to the case at hand. Thirdly, they must be able to recollect what they have perceived. They have to remember what they witnessed. And then finally, they must be able to report what they perceive. So for for a witness in the U.S. courts to be competent to bear testimony, those things must be true. You must be under oath, have personal knowledge, having witnessed something with his own senses, and he must be able to recollect what he perceived and then able to report what he saw and witnessed. It's interesting, testimonial evidence is one of the only kinds of proof that does not need supporting evidence to be admissible. In the prologue to both his gospel and his first letter, the Apostle John presents his own testimony, but not merely his own testimony, the testimony of the other apostles as well as evidence for the gospel. And as we will see, it is evidence that meets the legal standard for reliable witnesses, even in our own system. We're studying this prologue together. Let me read it for you again. 1 John chapter 1, 
verses 1 to 4. This is the introduction to his letter. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This paragraph teaches us that the ultimate foundation, the ultimate foundation of fellowship with God, of our assurance of that fellowship, that is that we have eternal life, and our resultant joy because of that assurance, all of those are bound up in the proclamation of the gospel that came from the apostles. In other words, understand that the foundation of everything for you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the foundation of everything is the gospel the apostles proclaimed. That's what John is telling us here. Now, this paragraph consists of two sentences. The second sentence is simple and straightforward. It's verse 4. But verses 1 to 3 is a long, difficult sentence. The subject and the verb of that sentence are in verse 3, we proclaim. That's the main subject and the main verb, we proclaim. But what was it that the apostles proclaimed? Well, the direct object of the verb proclaim is the four phrases of verse 1. Here's what they proclaimed, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our hands, what we have looked at and touched with our hands. Now, the last phrase in verse 1 identifies the one that those other phrases describe, the person who was at the center of the apostles' proclamation. Notice the end of verse 1, their message was concerning or was about the word of life. That's not just a message, it's a message embodied in a person. Just as John does in his gospel, he gives the name the word to our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, verse 2, you'll notice in our translation, is set off with dashes. That's because it's parenthetical. Verse 2 is explaining how it was that the 12, the 12 apostles, came to hear and to see and to look at and to touch the Son of God. It was through the incarnation. Then verses 3 and 4 explain to us the reasons for both the apostles' proclamation of that gospel and for the, for the apostle John's letter that we call 1 John. Now, I've noted for you that this prologue then is about the apostles' proclamation. Again, the main subject, we, the main verb, proclaim. That's what it's about. And it points out for us three key features about that proclamation. Three key features of the Apostles' Proclamation. Now, last time, we looked at the focus of the Apostles' Proclamation. And the focus of their message is Jesus Christ. As we discovered last time in the first three verses, 
John explains several crucial truths about our Lord. I'm not going to take time to re-explain them. I'll just list them. And if you missed last week, you need to go back and catch up because this is the focus of the message. In those first verses, we learn that Jesus our Lord existed eternally, that He is truly human, that He is God's self-expression, that He is self-existent. That is, He has life in Himself and depends on nothing and no one for that life. Instead, He gives life to everything and everyone. He was manifested in human flesh. He was eternally with God. He is Jesus of Nazareth, and He is, this was His mission, the promised Messiah and Savior. All of that in the first three verses of this letter. Now today we come to a second feature of their message. We've seen the focus of their message. Today we come to the integrity of their message, the integrity of the apostles' proclamation. You see, when you look at those three verses, the first three verses, you not only see those truths about Jesus, but interwoven with those truths about Christ, in the very same verses, John also gives us several reasons that we can trust the message that they proclaimed about Jesus. Why should we believe the message that the apostles preached about Jesus of Nazareth? Why should we believe those things that we just pointed out they said were true about Him? Well, here in this text, we are given those reasons, the reasons that we can trust their proclamation about Christ. Let's look at these reasons together. First of all, because they were reporting historical events. Notice verse 2. And the life, talking about Jesus, remember he was just called the word of life, the end of verse 1, and the life, Jesus our Lord, was manifested. And we have seen and testify and proclaimed to you the eternal life. It's not talking now just about the, the idea that you can have eternal life. It's talking about the person who embodies eternal life, Jesus. We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Now, you'll notice twice at the beginning of verse 2 and then again at the end of verse 2, John underscores that the eternal Son was manifested. He was publicly revealed. He was made known. And specifically, he means he was manifested in the flesh. How do I know that? Because this is almost identical to what John said at the beginning of his gospel. Go back to John 1. You remember that there is so much overlap between the prologue of John's gospel, written around the same time at the end of the first century, and his first letter. You remember he begins with this concept of the Word. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He goes on to say that He, was, he created all things in verse 3. Verse 4, He was, again, self-existent. In Him was life, and He gave life to everything else. He, the life was the light of men. Talks about the witness of John the Baptist. But notice verse 14, here's how He puts it in, this gospel, in His gospel, the Word became flesh. That is the same concept as the Word was manifested. The Word became flesh. 
You know, we read that, and I'm afraid we become so accustomed to that idea that we just sort of read past it. Stop and let that sink into your mind. The eternal Son of God became just like you. He had a, and has a human soul and a human body. He added that to his, to his divine nature, and now he is the God-man. He was manifested in the flesh. The Word became flesh. He became one of us, and He dwelt among us, verse 14 says. Literally, He tabernacled among us. He goes on to say, and we saw His glory. And what we saw, it was glory as of the only begotten, the one-of-a-kind, unique Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Turn over to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3. A few moments ago, we sang together the, the confession of the Apostles' Creed. Well, here is one of the earliest creeds of the church, one of the earliest confessions. 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. By common confession. Here, this is the confession we make. Great is the mystery. Now, you remember in biblical terms, a mystery is something that was not previously known and could not be known if God didn't reveal it, but that God has now revealed. So great is the mystery of godliness. That is the mystery of how sinful human beings like us can become godly, how we can have a relationship with God. Basically, we'd say this, great is that once secret plan that God has now revealed about salvation, how we can be reconciled to God. And you'll notice it's all about a person. He who was Revealed, same word, manifested. He who was revealed in the flesh. He was vindicated in the Spirit. That's, that's probably a, an acknowledgment of the resurrection. You remember Romans chapter 1, verse 4, says he was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead through the, the work and testimony of the Holy Spirit. Everything he claimed to be was vindicated by the Spirit in resurrecting him from the dead. He was seen by angels. Certainly that was true at his resurrection. It was also true at the ascension 40 days later. He was seen by angels, and as a result of his, of his being manifested in the flesh, his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, being witnessed by angels, notice he was proclaimed among the nations, among all the peoples of the world, and some believed that message, believed on in the world. Folks, that's us. And then taken up in glory. That's obviously a reference to the ascension, but it's out of chronological order here. Why? Because it's also pointing forward to his ultimate exaltation when, as Philippians 2 says, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he's Lord. This is, this is our confession. This is our common confession of how sinners like us can become godly and have a relationship with God. He was manifested. Jesus was manifested or revealed in the flesh. He became one of us. Folks, he is a person of history. By the way, no credible historian denies that a historical person named Jesus of Nazareth lived and died during the first century. No credible historian. You know, every Christmas and Easter, some 
some nut will come along on television and they'll actually put it on saying, you know, well, we don't even know if there was a Jesus. Try visiting Israel and find out if that's true. Nobody there says, oh, we don't know if Jesus of Nazareth really lived. If you want to study this further, by the way, read The Historical Jesus by Gary Habermas. It lays out the case for the historicity of Jesus primarily from secular documents. Of course, Jesus was a person of history. John and the other apostles were discussing real historical events, not myths or fables. Don't think for a moment that you can deny his claims against your life by denying that he really existed or was real. You can write Jesus off as a myth or a legend. You can deny his claims. You can call him a liar, a charlatan, or a fraud. But ultimately, you really cannot deny that he lived in Israel in the beginning of the first century. History will have none of it. He was manifested in the flesh. That is simply a fact of history. The apostles were reporting real historical events, and that lies at the foundation of their integrity and reliability. Secondly, we can trust their message, their proclamation, because they were firsthand eyewitnesses. Verse 1, what was from the beginning, that is, that word that existed eternally and was, the end of verse 1, the word of life, verse 2, and the life was manifested, and notice this, we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. It was the apostles' firsthand observation of the eternal Son of God revealed in the flesh that was the basis of their gospel. That's the point of verse 1. Look back up there at verse 1. John says, we proclaim what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now look first at that word we there in verse 1. Various writers have suggested that that word we could mean several different things. Some say it means I. In other words, it's an editorial we in which we just means John. But that doesn't work because that means John is presenting himself as the only witness. Now, John understood Old Testament law, and he knew that under Old Testament law, one witness wasn't enough. Deuteronomy 17.6, Deuteronomy 19.15 says there have to be two or three witnesses for a matter to be confirmed. And John quotes that very concept from the mouth of Jesus in his gospel in John 8, verses 17 and 18. He knew there had to be two or three witnesses or more. And we'll see this when we get to, to 1 John 5, 7. There he, he brings together three witnesses. So John understood this concept of two or three witnesses required. So he's not presenting himself here as the sole witness and saying, believe me. Also, another argument against this meaning just John is John, in other places in this letter, uses the first person singular pronoun. Look at, look at um, 1 John 2, verse 1. 1 John 2, verse 1 my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. 
Verse 7, Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment. Verse 8, On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you. So, in the first verse, when John says, we, he knew the first person singular pronoun, and he used it in other places, so he has to mean more than just I in that context. Another option that some say we means here is it means John and the leaders of the church in Ephesus. John was there pastoring, and he was in that church and serving that church and was reaching out into the communities around, and they say, well, he means that. Others say, no, he didn't mean him and the leaders of the church in Ephesus. He means himself and all believers. In a sense, we have all given witness to these realities. Folks, that doesn't work either, because neither the first century leaders in Ephesus nor all of us have seen Jesus with our eyes or touched him with our hands. So that leaves us with only one other option, and it's the obvious option in this context. When he says we in verse 1, he's talking about himself and the other apostles. The nature of the experiences here, hearing, seeing, touching, demands that these are eyewitnesses. So by we, John means himself and the other apostles. It's like over in chapter 4, verse 14, we have seen. There again, he switches back from I to we. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. You see, John was the last living apostle when he wrote this letter, but he still recognized that he was one of a select group of men who were firsthand witnesses of the events in the life of Jesus. Consider what the apostles experienced as firsthand witnesses. Look back at verse 1. What we have heard. You'll notice the perfect Greek tense is reflected in the way it's translated here, have heard. The perfect tense implies that what they had heard Jesus teach in the past continued to influence them. It continued to echo in their minds and memories what we have heard. I mean, think about what John would have heard. As one of the inner circle, John had literally heard everything Jesus had said and taught. Verse 1, what we have seen with our eyes. John says, I and the other apostles have seen Jesus Christ. And he adds, with our eyes, meaning we really saw him. We're not talking about a spiritual vision here. John himself saw everything Jesus did for the better part of those three and a half years. You remember initially, he didn't travel with him day and night until Jesus called them out of the rest of the disciples to be the apostles. And from that point forward, for probably the better part of two and a half years, he was with Jesus 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He saw the miracles that are recorded in the Gospels. He witnessed them with his own eyes. He was with Jesus from his baptism by John the Baptist until Jesus ascended into, the, into heaven on the Mount of Olives on the day of the ascension. He saw it all. That 
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of his current series, The Apostles' Proclamation. Tom will bring you part four on our next broadcast as he once again takes us to God's Word. We do hope you'll join us then. But before we leave you today, here's Tom with a closing thought. John is reminding us here that our faith isn't a fairy tale. It's not a myth. It's not a legend. Rather, it is built on the eyewitness testimony of history. And of course, ultimately, what we believe comes back to the trustworthiness of a person, and that is Jesus Christ. Can we trust Jesus Christ? That's really the ultimate issue because he's the one who confirmed the Old Testament for us. In Matthew 5, he said, these are the words of God, as he referred to the Old Testament. And he pre-authenticated the New Testament by choosing those who would write it. And so we have in the scriptures what Jesus himself has affirmed. How do we know that Jesus can be trusted? Well, he himself staked everything back on the resurrection. He said, if I am raised from the dead, then everything I've claimed and everything I've taught can be believed. So in the end, our faith rests on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he has been raised from the dead. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. And don't forget to connect with us on social, at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.